Welcome to HSBC Talks Business, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Winsunas from Ashbury. Welcome to the next episode of Sustainability Pioneers. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector is critical if we're going to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. In 2021, transportation accounted for 37% of all CO2 emissions from end-use sectors, according to the International Energy Agency. It's clear this has to change. The question is how. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by two guests with expertise on the pathway to decarbonization for the transportation sector and insight on one company's innovations for helping drive vehicle electrification. Let's begin by welcoming Michael Rama, Chief Financial Officer of Blink Charging, and Martin Richards, Global Head of Sustainable Finance in HSBC's Commercial Banking Division and President of HSBC Ventures. Michael, Martin, it's great to have you both with us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Let's start off with some essential background. Listeners will know that electric vehicles or EVs are one of the most important technologies for decarbonizing the transport sector. They are several times more efficient at converting energy into propulsion than gasoline or diesel engines with much lower life cycle emissions. EV sales are growing fast. There are more than 20 million passenger EVs and 1.3 million commercial EVs on the road today globally, according to Bloomberg NEF. About 6.5 million new vehicles were sold in 2021, up from only about a half million in 2015. But for EVs to become truly mainstream, the charging infrastructure will have to keep up. And this is where Michael and Blink Charging come in. The Florida headquartered company provides fast EV charging stations and networks for homes and businesses. It operates across 25 countries and is growing quickly. The number of charging stations that Blink has contracted for, deployed, or sold increased by 160% between the third quarter of 2021 and the third quarter of 2022. So, Michael, let's start with that story. These are impressive growth numbers, and we're interested in how you have achieved them. Could you give us a quick introduction to Blink's mission and the business model, and what makes you stand out among your peers? Blink is one of the largest providers of EV charging infrastructure products and solutions in the world today. We're we're a fully vertically integrated company. And what that means is we design our own equipment, we manufacture our own equipment, we own and operate our equipment, and we also sell the hardware. No other company in the United States does that. Since 2009, we've actually deployed more than 59,000 chargers globally. We've had over 440,000 active users. And what makes us unique is our flexible business model. And that's what differentiates us between us and our competition. Our business model has various options. Our turnkey solution is where we pay for the hardware, we pay for installation. So we'll do everything. We have many that like that. Uh, And in that case, we keep 90% of the charging revenues in that case. Uh, We split about 90, 90%, 10%. Um, is one solution. The other solution is our hybrid. Hybrid meaning we'll pay for the hardware, the property owner will in, will pay for the installation, uh, there's maintenance contracts, and what that is, uh, it's, it's less capital intensive for the property owner. Um, and in that model, we will we actually keep about 60 to 70% of the charging 
revenue and it's the the fuel that's being that's being utilized and the property owners will share about 30 to 40 percent of that charging revenue and then if um, some property owners want to own and maintain it themselves we'll just sell the hardware as well so we see a, a mixture of our customer bases want wanting both so the point is is provide a flexible business model flexible solution so we say yes to everybody some of our competitors will only sell the hardware. Some will, will also just uh, uh, own it and operate themselves. We want to give a, a, a flexible business model for our customers. Now tell us, how did Blink get started? Was the opportunity and this model clear from the get-go or did your strategy evolve over time? Well, we started from the get-go. We believe that own and operate in the long term is really the, uh, is the preferable model not just selling the hardware. At, at, at some point, no different from TVs, cell phones, and all that stuff, there's going to be a, a commoditization of the selling of the hardware. Price margins will come down. Pricing will come down. Margins will come down. But it's really the selling of the fuel. Uh, and that's what we really believe is a long-term uh, a business prospect that it's the selling of the fuel. It's, a, it's similar to you go to a, a regular gas station, petrol station today, you know, regular fuel. Do you, do you remember who makes the hardware? No, you know who's selling the fuel, right? And so at the end of the day, it's the fuel that you're selling. As EV adoption increases, as EV penetration increases, we'll see the utilization component of the business expanding. And that's why, again, we like to offer the flexible business model because we don't want to say no to anybody, right? And so at the end of the day, we want we have various businesses that have different uh, needs, and we want to cater to any of those. So looking ahead then, where do you see the fastest growth in terms of EV take-up and charging infrastructure needs? Right now, California in the U.S., uh, the EV penetration rate on EVs in, in California is 18%. That's the highest in the U.S., Across the entire U.S., it's about 6%. So we're still very early in the penetration rate uh, of the EV adoption. Uh, however, Norway in Europe is at over 80%. But there's much more demand is coming. You know, the OEMs are committing uh, intense amount of capital uh, towards the electrification of vehicles. In fact, over $32 billion in new automotive investments was committed in 2022 uh, to build more EV vehicles. So it's coming. We believe the trend is very positively, and it's going to just, we believe it's just going to continue to accelerate. Right. It's clear that we're still at an early stage in EV adoption and that there's a, a lot of upside here. So let's turn to Martin at HSBC now. Martin, how does what Michael shared align with what you're seeing in terms of growth for the EV sector overall? Um, in the U.S., for instance, now the transportation sector is responsible for more emissions than the U.S. grid. So it's becoming more and more essential that we do decarbonize all of our transportation. Huge amount of growth in all markets, but you can see the big markets begin to move in the right direction. And you know, when you when I think back to COP26 back in Glasgow, uh, six auto manufacturers and 30 companies pledged to phase out ICE cars, um, internal combustion engine cars. So you've got you know, major manufacturers as well as major countries saying that we're going to go on this route. Um, I've looked at a, a number of reports, and by 2030, people are kind of all over the place because um, it's a little bit out there. But at least 25%, if not 40%, 50% of new cars by then are expected to be electric. And, and just to kind of, I would say, emphasize Michael's point, 
this is not a niche business anymore. The big manufacturers are, are getting into this. So um, in 22, the, the large auto manufacturers only produced about 10% of all the EVs. Uh, by 2030, the uh, projection is they will produce 70%. And then on top of that, on the charging side, and I, I'm not sure if this is good news for Michael or bad news, but the big guys are getting into charging. Recently, uh, Shell just announced they're going to buy Balsa, which is a competitor of uh, Michael's companies. Um, and so you're seeing you know, major companies in the space both invest in cars and in charging. In terms of support, it looks like investment in EVs is going to get another boost in the U.S. from the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which was signed into law uh, just last year and commits some $500 billion U.S. dollars of new spending and tax breaks to support clean energy, among other purposes. Michael, how encouraged are you by these new measures and what do they mean for the EV sector? Yeah, we're very encouraged. But, you know, there are a number of elements in the IRA that, that apply to Blink. You know, for example, there's the clean commercial vehicle credit. It provides up to $40,000 per medium or heavy duty EV. You know, this along with the renewal of the $7,500 clean credit, vehicle credit, uh, as well as the alternative fuel vehicle uh, credit that provides credit for up to $100,000 per charger. So, We'll see uh, not only the drivers making the switch to, 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 to EVs, but more businesses are helping out to, to build the need for infrastructure, create a more robust and green transportation grid. So we're very encouraged uh, and we're, uh, you know, it's just makes for an exciting time. Martin, what's your take? How could the Inflation Reduction Act change the economics of the EV sector and the availability of capital to finance its growth? I'll say that I'm coming from a, a prejudiced position, but I think the IRA is the greatest bill since the NIRA, which was the National Industrial Recovery uh, Act that Roosevelt had to get us out of the uh, Great uh, Depression. I mean, this is not only going to be good for the US, but places like Europe and Asia will have to compete with the US or all battery manufacturing will move to the US, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, I, I think you'll not only will this act reduce carbon emissions in the US, but it'll help reduce carbon emissions around the world. And it is a very complex and in some ways confusing bill, but there are you know, up to 35% off the cost of battery cells, another 10% off of uh, battery modules. Um, there's a 10% tax credit off of minerals uh, like lithium. And that's not just mining. There's a bunch of uh, recycling companies out there that recycle uh, batteries because I, I think up until now, when the US had 5% EV cells, there was plenty of capacity to make those batteries. As we get to 80%, we're going to have to recycle those batteries. And so there's a whole supply chain, both you know, uh, front and back, to make sure these cars stay on the road and stay um, kind of low carbon. One of the things that capital outside of the government likes is certainty. And I think one of the nice things about the IRA is it is longer term. Um, in the past, we've seen kind of one year, two years, and it's hard to do a long term. We're going to build a factory to make batteries or we're going to build a factory to make turbines for a wind turbine. 
not knowing what the long-term tax effect is going to be. So I think the IRA is going to be very, very powerful. We're a big advocate of blended finance, where there's a government, there's a private lender, private investor coming together to actually make some of these plants and some of these entities work. And so we've been working with the um, Department of Energy Loan Production Office, which is their loan office, to kind of work on some of these larger plants and larger financings to make sure these things come together. But I I personally believe that it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. You have to have charging before you can have cars and you have to have cars before you can have charging or before charging makes sense. But I think the IRA was the, the match that lit the Tinder to get all of that rolling quickly. So I'm very, very enthusiastic, both about the IRA here in the U.S. and, as I said, globally. And how do you think this uh, financial support from governments is going to catalyze financing from the private sector, such as from financial institutions or institutional investors yeah, I mean, we're seeing interest from all over, from, uh, you know, venture capitalists, you know, early stage all the way through uh, institutional late stage investors. And again, it's both debt and equity. And I, I do think there are a number of projects that are in the works and the IRA really helped. And, you know, Blink's a great example that they were already up and running and producing and installing, and that really helps them. I, I think now, as people get more comfort of what the IRA actually means for each individual sector, you're going to see new participants and new fundings, new vehicles enter into each of these different sectors. And obviously, the incumbents like Michael and Blink are at an advantage because they're already, you know, 10 miles down the road. We're seeing a lot of the large uh, global private equity funds have now gone into climate. And we're seeing a lot of the normal project finance financiers have driven down the cost of capital in renewables and uh, climate deals. Um, It used to be that there was kind of a parity between, let's say, an oil deal and a wind deal. And now it's a lot more expensive to do an oil deal than it is a wind deal. And again, a lot more expensive to build a factory uh, that isn't backed by the RA than one that is. So uh, definitely a lot of participation from the capital markets. Okay, so let's switch gears now and look at software. The software connected with EV hardware and systems. Martin, EVs and charging networks are part of the Internet of Things, right? They generate a lot of data about where, when, and how they are used. How is this data being harnessed to build more efficient infrastructure and drive adoption What's what's the role of software here and for technologies like AI, for example? Well, yeah, so, I mean, let me, I'll maybe I'll start um, on the HSBC Venture side. We're looking at a lot of companies in that space as far as kind of tracking optimization of use. Um, there are companies, for instance, that look at large fleets and using um, IoT and AI um, optimize the use of that fleet to minimize carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. There are other companies that help electric car owners, whether they be fleets or they be consumers, charge that electric car both at the lowest price point and potentially the highest renewables use. So you can both get a, uh, a beneficial price and potentially maximize the use of renewables. So all of these things are coming together using what I'd say is pure play technology 
overlapping with both renewables and EVs. And I know Michael's uh, involved in all of this. Yeah, we're involved too. And obviously, it's a dynamic uh, situation where it's the whole, I call it the energy ecosystem, right? So again, we look at the full ecosystem of the energy play and, and try to make sure that uh, each process is identified and, and we can uh, you know, maximize or, or, or be part of the different areas that are evolving as we speak. Now, so far, we've focused on opportunity and growth drivers, but what about challenges? Michael, what would you say is the biggest hurdle for EV adoption today, and how do you think the industry will get past it? Yeah, I think it's it's a couple of things. It's obviously, we're so early in the whole EV adoption process, so you know, these things do take some time. And with that, it takes capital. You know, it's going to be a very capital intensive transformation, if you will. So EV adoption was still in the single digits in 2022. You know, it's expected to grow 11% year over year. And, and it just comes down to the volume, right? A McKinsey study came out last year that showed that U.S. alone is expected to, uh, by 2030, could have 48 million EVs on the road, right? So that's uh, there's a long way to go from where we're at now. Uh, and then Bloomberg globally is is predicting a 340 million to 490 million chargers by 2040. So we're just scratching the surface right now, right, on this whole thing. And it goes back to my first comment: capital, right? So uh, and and I, I call it capital and patience, right? So so it's it's happening, but it's going to take some time. Uh, but I think the capital will help accelerate that part of the process. But you know, and then uh, it just takes time to for those and, and the battery evolution and various things that are moving at the same time. I think it's um, there's a dichotomy in the market uh, between what I would say is commercial fleet business and consumer. On the fleet side, companies have realized it is cheaper to buy and operate an electric fleet than it is a ICE fleet. And you know, most of them have the have either have the capital or have access to the capital to make those transactions uh, happen. Basically, transition their fleet. On the consumer side, as Michael said, there's kind of a long way to go there. There's still kind of consumer range anxiety, which is, you know, will my electric car get me to where I want to go to? Most of us never drive long distances, and pretty much any electric car will work for you any time. But that that has not, you know, not every consumer believes that right now. And again, it's it's I think it's just timing in the market and getting everyone there. There's also people who there are people who take long drives and use their car for long distances. And there are also people that don't have garages. And like where where do they charge at night? What we I think have realized is we need to have chargers at apartment buildings, coffee shops, malls. And a couple of points to that is, you know, dwell time, you know, cars are idle, but 90, 95% of the time, think about that, right? So there's a lot of charging opportunities just because the cars aren't being used, vehicles aren't being used. And to your point, Martin, you know, unless, unless you're going highway driving uh, and in and, and, and quarter routes, that may account for less than 10%, I call it the DC fast charger market, probably account for less than 10% of the, of the highway needs, because again, most are going to be charging when the cars are idle, downtime. Uh, either if they have a, a, a you know a garage to charge in, they'll do it at their home. Right, and we can't have a discussion about the challenges for EVs without talking about range anxiety and you know, drivers' concerns about 
how far they can get on a single charge. Michael, how is charging technology keeping pace as more people start to drive EVs? Yeah, no, obviously, even before the industry transition, you know, to new standards, we, we, we started replacing components to upgrade the connectivity to our chargers, you know, so we're being very proactive. But one of the things we do in our with our product is we make sure we have high quality firmware. We try as much as possible to build out obsolescence because if we're owning and operating, we don't want to be having to replace those chargers. So if someone's buying our charger because they want to own and operate or we own and operate, we want that charger to last seven, 10, whatever number of years, we don't want to be replacing that. We make sure through our design technology, between our manufacturing capabilities, that we want to build out obsolescence because we want that charger to last uh, on the long term, because as an owner operator, we want to be replacing it every two years. And of course, investing in technology like this is obviously pretty capital intensive. How has HSBC helped you finance the growth you've achieved over the past few years and helped you scale up the business. Uh, I know the bank worked with you on a $250 million at the market offering or ATM last year, for example. HSBC has been a tremendous partner with us. We, you know, I brought them in uh, several years ago because I knew um, Blink, we were just scratching the surface and starting this the, the process of uh, internationalizing our business. One of the areas what I want to make sure is is that we had a stable platform from a treasury uh, and, and perspectives that I could open up an office in uh, in Europe. I could open an office up in Israel. I could open up an office in in uh, South America. That the HSBC is business partners that enables us to have one platform, being able to have a very robust treasury system platform that allows us to be uh, very interactive and not having. 10 different systems because of 10 different countries, right? So so it's been extremely, extremely helpful uh, in the process. You know, so we, we, we have banking now across the US, Netherlands, India, UK, Israel, Canada through HSBC. So it's been tremendous uh, and also getting attractive uh, FX conversions from having multiple currency rates. So been an extreme strong partner with, for, with Blink and we uh, look forward to continuing the relationship. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, Martin, Blink Charging is clearly a great example of a company that's helping to decarbonize transportation. And it's been able to scale up quickly with support from banks and investors. But what else is HSBC doing in the EV sector? Sure, sure, yes. Um, so at, at HSBC Ventures, we look at uh, all sectors, we're sector agnostic, um, early stage companies, you know, and, and as Michael says, you know, pre, pre-IPO growth companies. People always say this, but there's, there's, there's truth to it. You've got to start with a management team because whatever the plan is, whatever the market is, whatever you think is going to happen with an early stage company, it is not going to happen. And you've got to have a management team that are competent enough, smart enough, really, really know that if something happens, they can change their plan and get to the end goal. And maybe the end goal is a different goal than we started off with. Um, so it really, we start off with management. You know, we're looking for companies that are in markets that have a large TAM, total addressable market. So there's a great kind of goal to go for and hopefully a moat around that business so that if they are successful, there isn't someone else going to just roll in right behind them and 
you know, price whatever the product is at a cheaper price and cut prices. So you're looking for kind of a large opportunity that the company can really build a moat around and have some real differential and differentiated product and service. I would say that some of the things that we've seen that work versus you know, mistakes that people have made, when markets are hot and you can actually access whether it be the public market or the private market, I think sometimes people only raise the very minimum. And you know, if there's a hot market, it's sometimes best to go out there and raise a ton of money and accelerate your plans. Because as we've seen right now, the IPO market was very strong and now it's become kind of closed. Um, I'm sure it'll open again. And so you really want to think about not just what you think is going to happen, but kind of buttress yourself for unexpected kind of events that could happen in the future. And I'd say kind of the last thing, and there's, there's a number of things we look at, but the last thing I would say is, you know, it's the, it's the partners as well that come together. It might be the equity funders, whether it be VCs uh, or corporate VCs, um, or it might be the partners. I mean, I don't know if Michael wants to talk about it, but Blink have just announced a deal with Misabushi. And those kind of name brand partners can really help kind of early stage or the private or public companies accelerate their growth and put them in a whole different league. Um, so those are some of the things we look at to evaluate whether we think the company is going to be successful or not. And, and to Mar- Martin's point is, yes, we, we, we signed up with, with Mitsubishi. We have relationships with a lot of many of the OEMs. We look at that as validation you will, of our product uh, and our solutions and, and, and our flexibility, if you will. So, uh, so yeah, when we, whenever we're able to, to strike a name brand, it's always great because it, it just solidifies the validation in, in our minds, at least in a, from an, an internal standpoint. So uh, it, it's very helpful. Thanks. And OEMs are uh, original equipment manufacturers, for those not familiar with the term. Martin, to start wrapping this up, Perhaps you could give us uh, a sense of some of the other technologies that you see powering the transition for the transportation sector. Yeah, I mean, we don't really look at it as a transport sector. We do look at it as the kind of climate tech space. So we've done deals with uh, utility scale battery companies um, as we have a lot more renewables on the grid. Not only do you have the batteries that go into cars, but you're going to have to have that grid become more reliable and have longer term kind of storage such that you can actually go to a higher percentage of renewables on the grid. We look at DER, distributed energy resource companies, and we, we bank a number of those companies. Uh, other ones that actually just manage demand. When, they're, when you have peak demand, um, a large retailer might be able to kind of turn off some of their lights and really take the kind of the peak off the top of the demand on the grid. And then instead of having to go kind of a peaker coal plant, you can stay on using solar and wind. So very, very effective. And then lastly, as I said, there's there's companies that we've worked with that have you know software and AI that help um, minimize and optimize the use of fleets. You don't want uh, a large bus going down Fifth Avenue, for instance, every hour. You might want a large bus going down Fifth Avenue at five o'clock, but at one o'clock, maybe you need a small minivan. And knowing what those demands are, and knowing how they peak throughout the year with different events, et cetera, et cetera, can help municipalities and other um, industrial large fleet owners minimize their footprint and really drive the best from their business. And I look at kind of AI and some of these um, general purpose technologies, GPTs, being kind of enablers for all kinds of things. 
both on the transportation side and on the climate side. And we're seeing more and more of the overlap of different technologies, whether it be AI, whether it be 3D printing, et cetera, et cetera, coming together to drive better outcomes, usage, and a better kind of climate for for the world. And as, as Michael said, this is not about the U.S., if we do wonderful things, but we don't help India do wonderful things, that is not going to save us. So we've got to do this globally. And that's one of the things we're very excited at HSBC, having a global footprint and being able to take on this global challenge in all parts of the world. Michael, back to you again. What are you expecting for the rest of 2023? And how optimistic do you feel about continued growth in EV adoption and for your business? Yeah, we're we're very optimistic for 2023. You know, we we acquired uh, a company last year uh, that uh, now gives Blink literally the manufacturing capabilities. So we're able to manufacture in in the U.S. Uh, we'll be uh, made in America compliant with our product, and we're really encouraged with our. Like I said, in-house capabilities of manufacturing the product, the hardware, uh, and it really uh, bodes well for our 2023 and moving forward. So um, appreciate the time. Well, thank you, Michael. And thank you, Martin. It's been fascinating to learn more about the growth in the EV market and how Blink Charging is building infrastructure to support it. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. So thank you, everyone, for joining. And please stay tuned for more conversations with global pioneers in climate and sustainability. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Talks Business. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please do subscribe to the HSBC Talks Business channel to stay up to date with new episodes.